Hello, everyone. This is Shannon Waller here, and today I am thrilled to be able to introduce you to someone who's written a book that I think is profound in its impact and its practical application. His name is Dr. Henry Cloud, and he's written a book called Necessary Endings, one of 20, over 20 that he's written, and one of the ones I think is really a must-have on everyone's bookshelf and in everyone's way of thinking. And the subtitle is The Employees, Businesses, and Relationships That All of Us Have to Give Up in order to move forward. And part of the reason why, Dr. Cloud, that I'm so excited to talk to you today is because this is an issue that I hear about all the time, I talk with our clients about all the time, in working with entrepreneurs and their teams, all of whom want to grow and move forward. Ending things is hard. And for most part, our clients are far better at beginning things. (laughs) So this is a very relevant topic. Just before we get into our conversation, I want to give everyone a little bit of background. So Dr. Henry Cloud is a leadership coach to CEOs, business executives, and entrepreneurs. And he's a clinical psychologist with an extensive background in both clinical and professional consulting worlds. And his examples run the whole gamut. So if there's any kind of thing you're wondering about, he's talked to that type of person and dealt with that kind of situation. And the thing that I love about how clearly things come through, and and as I said earlier when we were talking, how well you translate your experience and the lessons from what you've learned into writing and into conversation so people can make use of it. So again, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's good to be with you. Thank you. All right. So is there anything I missed in your introduction, in my brief introduction, that people should know about you? No, not too much, except just to contextualize it so they'll know kind of the purview of all this. I started out as a clinical psychologist, but my first job as a clinician happened to be in a leadership consulting firm. So from day one, as a shrink, I was kind of like the entrepreneur shrink, right? (laughs) You know, CEOs and executive teams and, and people in business. And I got really interested in leadership. So for the most part, my clinical work has been with people in, that are pretty high performers. And then I continue to do a lot of consulting like that. And then after a handful of years, I decided, you know, because of my business juices, I wanted to do something more specific. And so I started a hospital, psychiatric hospital treatment center, and went out and found the investors and the management from the healthcare part of it and all that, put that together, and that one went well and ended up with hospitals and treatment centers in about 40 markets in the western states and ran that company for about 10 years. And so I found myself on both sides of the you know, entrepreneur coach, but actually starting and building businesses. And so the topic we're going to talk about today is really close to my heart from both sides of that fence working with CEOs and leaders as well as, you know, having built companies. And so that's where we are. I love it. And I love that you come from an entrepreneurial background. That just makes my heart sing. <laughs> so I love that. And you <laughs> describe that in the book as well and just how we would call it front stage and backstage at Strategic Coach. But front stage, that was really what you're focused on was patients and clients. But running the business was a real challenge and how that was one of the necessary endings that is a great example for you. Yeah, there were several necessary endings. You know, the big one was after pouring over a decade into this and building this big company, the healthcare industry really, really changed. And when managed care came along and decided that they weren't going to pay much for psych services anymore, you're talking about a service and a world of content that had to find a different application. And so what the necessary ending at that time was the structure of what I had done 
went away. It's sort of like borders. If mm-hmm. you're <laughs> if you're in a content, you got to realize the brick and mortar bookstores are not the essence of the business. That's the delivery system. And mm-hmm. so I went from hospitals to taking stuff, you know, in other venues. So it's just a part of every business. And you know, the book really starts out trying to get entrepreneurs and leaders to understand that necessary endings do not come because something is wrong. They come because you're still alive. (laughs) I love that. And so when leaders register in their head, you know, the next step as, as something's wrong, then they tend to get in conflict about it. And they go into a fight or flight, and they either fight the ending that is clearly staring them in the face, or they avoid it and move away from it. And, and and really smart people can do this for long periods of time. In the book, I I think I cited why you got the smartest car executives in the world, right? And why did it take a bankruptcy judge to finally shut down Pontiac? Mm-hmm. You know, GM kept it for four decades, 40 years after it was making a profit. Wow. But Why? That's what happens to business leaders with there's people that should go away, there's product lines that should go away, there's strategies that should end, there are paradigm shifts, and it's just a difficult thing to do. It is difficult, and there's about five points I want to bring out at this juncture. One of the things I want people to really understand is, in the context you put around this, which I think is just life-transforming, is that change is natural and endings are natural the same way that seasons are and the life cycle. So can you elaborate on that? Because when you said that, I was like, oh, I've been fighting what is really a normal and natural thing. Well, I'd just like for everybody listening to us to just ask themselves, did you marry your prom date? (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, a few did, but most didn't, right? Right. So, So endings are not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Right. And here's kind of the premise underneath this, is that, that everything has a life cycle. Businesses have life cycles, and in the startup phase, if you try to, to continue with the processes and the systems and the people and the talent and everything exactly the same that you began with and not realizing you're in a different season that requires a lot of different things, then you're going to stay stuck. And just like human development, there's a time to give up infancy, then you move on. There's a time to give up toddlerhood, and then you move on. There's a time to get out of high school, and then you move on. But those endings, some people stay stuck. And I see CEOs of global enterprises, I'm talking $50, $60 billion companies, who get paralyzed when some endings are staring them in the face. But they have to really put their arms around, what is it about me and my dynamics that make this hard? And that's where success is found to the next level. It's when the entrepreneur begins to look at him or herself and realizes my psychology is in the way of this business getting to the next level. Well, and you make a really fascinating distinction between intellectually, we can know that. We can have an intellectual response that that's logical. But then we have an emotional response that may not be in alignment with that. You know, there may not be integrity between those two things. Right. And by and large, by and large, it is very difficult for anyone to pull the trigger on something that they're having a fight or flight reality about inside of themselves because you're just in conflict and so what we have to ask is 
what is it about pulling the trigger on firing somebody or changing the team out or giving up a strategy or shutting down a product line or whatever it is, what is it about pulling the trigger on that that's causing me to stall? And what we end up finding is that those are conflicts inside of the person, and they'll rationalize them with all sorts of business arguments, and it just is really about them. Since I know everyone listening is going to be pretty action-oriented, one, okay, what do we do <laughs> when we're feeling stuck, when we're feeling in conflict? Yeah. And one of them that you were speaking to me as I read the entire book twice, because I think I need to read it every month or so, is that you make well, it as... Can I interrupt Go that ahead. statement for one second? Yeah. When you say you need to read it every month or so, here's what I try to tell entrepreneurs and businesses. The book starts with the pruning metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, that to get the greatest rosebush... What gardeners do is they prune it, and they prune it in three areas. They prune it because the bush is going to produce more buds than it can sustain. It can't feed all the products that it comes up with, right, and all the ideas and uh-huh. all the meetings and all the everything. So there's good stuff that's got to go away, so the best stuff has the resources. The second one is that there's branches and buds that are sick, and they're not going to get well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've given them fertilizer, you've tried everything possible, and they're not going to get well, and they got to go. And the third one is there's a bunch of dead stuff that's been sitting there getting in the way for a long time. So when you say every month or so, here's the truth about really, really, really good companies. They don't prune when everything's going in the toilet. It is a regular monthly discipline. Mm. And what I do with teams is I ask them, what are your pruning structures? How often do you guys get together around the table and ask those three questions? What good stuff are we doing that's really in the way of what we need to be doing? What stuff is sick and we keep pouring time and energy into this person or this strategy or whatever it is, and it's not going to get well? And thirdly, what's been long since dead around here is taking up space. And that should be kind of a monthly thing, right? Or a regular thing. Well, I love that. And talking about reading it every month is that just to remind me that that's a really important practice and to make it normal. One of the things that you said, going back to the printing analogy and what stops us sometimes, one of the things that really struck me that just changed my thinking was that life produces too much life. Right. And that was like, yeah. If I think about a maple tree, because there's lots of those in Toronto where I am, how many thousands of maple keys does a tree produce? I can't count them. How many actually end up being trees in the next generation? Very few of those thousand. And that's normal. And that's appropriate. And I don't have to maximize every single one, which until then really had been my kind of modus operandi. Well, there's a reason why top producers prune their contact list. Mm -hmm. And why, you know, one of the most important things to grow a business that people have got to look at that's hard for them to do is there are some customers that are taking up way too much time and resources for what they'll ever be. But because they're contributing something to the top or bottom line, people are afraid to cut them loose. One of my favorite conversations to have with clients is about firing clients. Right. What's interesting for entrepreneurs often is that the client might be lovely with them, but they take up an enormous amount of the team's time. Exactly. They're nasty with the team. They suck up all their time and energy. They have a million small requests, and the team dreads answering the phone. 
And sometimes the client knows that they're doing that or sometimes they're not. But the conversation to let them go is profound and just frees up the business and frees up the team's time. And not only that, how much do all the people fall in love with their leader when they do that? To know that their leader is looking at their time and resources as being that important that they would fire a client because of the way that their people are treated. Exactly. And I mean, you send such a fantastic message when you do that. One of the other things, another distinction that you make, again, that I found really useful, is the difference between hurt and harm. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that, again, struck me. Well, it's something I think that you know any kind-hearted person probably has got to wake up to at some point in their lives, because we don't like to see people go through pain. But I think I told the story in there about there was a... A leader, this would have been, it's about a $5 billion company, and she had just gotten promoted to the pretty highest levels. And they were doing a new strategy, and the new strategy was going to cause them to have to move some people around. And she said, you know, if we do this, there's a lot of people in leadership right now that really aren't going to be in leadership after this because they don't fit the new strategy. And I said, yeah, well, that's part of your new job <laughs> you know that's what you got to do and and she goes i just i don't know how to do that i mean i don't think i can do it and, and i said why and she said because every day when i go to work i think about how i motivate people and treat people and all that so that when they drive home that day their reflections back on the company and everything it's about their drive home will be positive she said that's what i think about and i said you want them to drive home every day feeling good? <laughs> she goes, well, yeah. I said, well, shouldn't they drive home some days hurting? And she goes, what do you mean hurting? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been to the dentist? She said, yeah. I said, did it hurt? She goes, yeah. I said, did it harm you? She said, no, it helped. And I said, okay, you as a leader, by definition... Your job is to do things sometimes that are going to hurt people. I don't mean harm them. But who likes to get a difficult review or difficult feedback? Or who, who likes to get moved because they're not performing or see something shut down? And if any kind of leader, if you judge what's right or wrong by how people feel about it, then you're not leading anything. And the worst part of it is the lowest common denominator is going to start setting the culture and the strategy and everything else. And so we cannot do things that are injurious or harmful to people. But hopefully every day we're going to be doing some things that sort of like going to the gym. It's going to hurt to stretch like that. Well, and I think that is so powerful. And I think your point about if, if you focus everything on feelings, you are, that's such a good point, left with the lowest common denominator driving your culture. I mean, happiness, although I love that conversation too, is emotions are temporary, is what I've discovered. They're not like the weather. They're also results. Right. They're not causes. Yes. In terms of, you know, when the emotion of being happy and being able to chew on that side of your mouth two weeks later after it heals, are really happy emotions. But they come from deciding to go through what doesn't make you happy, which is to have this person <laughs> drilling on your tooth for a couple hours. <laughs> Good point. So we can't choose whether or not we're going to have pain. What we can choose, for the most part, a lot of times, what kind of pain we're going to have. Am I going to have the pain that is 
proactively chosen to bring about the absence of pain, or am I going to have the pain that comes from trying to avoid pain? And that's a big choice. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Dan Sullivan, the co-founder of Strategic Coach, talks about, he says, we all have a choice. Suffering will happen. Do you want short suffering or long suffering? Yeah. Which sounds very much analogous to what you're talking about. And it's like most of us were like, okay, short suffering is okay. We can survive that. (laughs) (laughs) I like your point about the pain of dealing with the pain. And I think when a lot of people push off decisions, procrastinate, which I'm sure we've all been guilty of at some point, that's what we're doing. And part of, again, why I was so struck by your book and our conversation is that, again, Dan has this great expression. He said, the problem is never the problem. The problem is not knowing how to think about the problem. Yeah. And what you've outlined and we'll continue to talk about is how to think about endings and make it normal, take away some of the emotion, recognize that you can hurt someone but not do them permanent harm. By the way, I really needed to have that conversation when I was a teenager. When I was a teenager and dating, I definitely needed to have the hurt, not harm conversation (laughs) because that would have made my dating life a little easier And because I hate hurting people. But then you do some really strange things when you're avoiding that. So I, You really do. I love you know, it. funny you mentioned that. Actually, when I was writing this book, one of my employees at that time had been going out with this guy, you know, a handful of times, and he was kind of getting attached, and he really liked her and all this, and she's going, no, I really don't, you know. And she started to kind of, like, she was sort of being goofy, you know, kind of giving excuses why she's busy and on and on and on. And I told her, I said, call the guy and tell him that nice guy, you've really enjoyed it, but, you know, it's not a connection for you, you're moving on. And she goes, I can't do you know, and so I made her do it, and I was listening in. Oh, my gosh, I love it. And so she does it, and then I can see her. I can't hear the guy, but I can see her, and she's going, oh, well, yeah, well, Really? Well, okay. I'm. Thank you. And she got off the phone, and I said, "What happened?" She goes, "He said thank you very much for telling me because so many women I go out with, if they just be honest, I just saved a bunch of money on dinners that I don't have to take you out on. (laughs) I can move on." (laughs) And you know that's so true in business because a lot of times we're afraid when somebody's not in the right position. We're afraid to move them or let them go or whatever. And all we're doing is we're keeping them stuck in failure. Mm-hmm. And we're punishing everybody that depends on that position to perform. We're punishing them because we're allowing our indecisiveness to hold the whole team back. Mm-hmm. As soon as you say that, I can think about people we've kept around way too long, way past their expiry date. I mean, I certainly am aware of the cost on the rest of the team, but it's really true that sometimes when you call it, if they're not going to, it is incredibly empowering and people launch into whole new areas. One of our concepts is unique ability and you free people up from doing what they're not unique at to do what they're more unique at and in a more fertile, productive environment for them. So what is a temporary pain does not necessarily mean you've ruined someone's life. Absolutely, especially, you know, in so many ways. I was with the CEO probably week before last where he runs about, it's grown now to about a little over $100 million or so. Mm-hmm. And one of the three legs of the company, the person that's in charge of that whole arm of it, 
his weakness is creating necessary endings for people underneath him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking to the CEO about coaching his VP. So when he looks at this, and I started drawing it up on the board, that division that's underneath him that he won't create an ending with the person that's driving that division, we started putting numbers to it. I made him go back to his strategic plan, and five years from now, what that division was going to be contributing to the strategy and put numbers to that and added it all up and then said, okay, this is what you're allowing this person to not pull the trigger on the person underneath them. That's what this is going to cost you in five years. Hmm. And you start putting a number to it, and it helps. Yes. I imagine it created a sense of urgency. It created a sense of urgency, and he went back to Seattle, and he dealt with his VP that wasn't dealing with the person. And see, that's the thing. I said, look, you could step in and say, I'm not allowing this anymore and fire the person. I said, but you don't understand. Your problem is not that this second-tier problem exists. Your problem is you've got somebody over one-third of your business that's not building an immune system in that business that creates necessary endings that need to happen every day. So what we're talking about is a non-performing culture. And I didn't want him to overstep this other guy and fire the one underneath him. I wanted him to realize he's got a coaching job with his VP that if he can't overcome this reluctance to endings that he has, then he should not be in that chair. Mm-hmm. Well, that is so powerful because it's like what happens if we don't take action, if we maintain the status quo? And when you figure that out, and as you directed the conversation to put actual hard numbers to it, that all of a sudden is black and white. Oh, gosh, that's so important. Yeah, and I like that. And by the way, one of the terms you use in the book, which Larry Laugh and I loved, is squishy, squishy thinking. (laughs) And don't be guilty of squishy thinking. Did I really say that and an editor left it in? Yeah, and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Usually my shrink talk, they'll edit out, but I'm glad they left that one in. That one just made my day, because that's how I talk, in case you can't tell. But it's true. I mean, getting into what's reality, if we keep it going, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, I think that long perspective really adds enormous amount of clarity to people. But your point about creating a non-performing culture, I'm passionate about teams, I'm passionate about company culture, I talk and write about it all the time. And so that's, I think, absolutely vital for people to really get is that if you let that situation go on, there's a much bigger cost, not just to that person or to your own personal discomfort, but to all the people underneath them. They're not going to succeed or win because this person is not doing what they need to do. Absolutely. And not only that, the DNA is being affected that's going to continue for possibly generations. And one of the things that I try to get people to really, really think about is ask the question, how is the immune system of your business doing? Do you have a healthy immune system? So describe that. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let's go back to that previous example. When you think of the immune system of a business, it is exactly like the immune system of your body. You know, when you get it at the cellular level of how your immune system works, 
What it does is, if you take in a bacteria, for example, and we do it every moment, really, you know, you go to lunch and you're going to stick something in your mouth and it's going to have something in there that's not good for you. Well, the initial thing that happens is it's dealt with initially by your saliva. And so it recognizes this isn't good, and so it just kind of eliminates it. Well, if it's a big enough problem where your saliva can't deal with it, then the next level happens, and on and on and on. And what the immune system does is it sends out a marker cell, and it names that bacteria. You know, this is HL673. It came from India in 1974, right? And here's its genetic makeup. Mm -hmm. So that all the other cells know this doesn't belong here. And then it sends out, you know, and then you got the all the teeth, you know, lots of different kinds of stuff have, and they go out and they contain it, and then they eliminate it. Okay, so that happens every day, without you even knowing about it. Mm-hmm. So the only time you know about it is when you get a fever. Right. Got it. Yep. All right. So let's go back to your CEO. Your CEO is floating along. And every day at all sorts of different levels, lack of performance, bad behavior, lack of creativity, whatever it is, the immune system of the culture of the company should be handling that, and the fever should never even get to you. But that means that you've done the things that only you can do, which is make sure the whole body has vegetables and sleep and vitamins and exercise that you are you are building the immune system and you've built a culture and you've focused enough on culture building that that kind of stuff would never exist and you don't even know about it because your people have been so trained to deal with little problems and to make them better and as I talk about the book there's real diagnostic systems of how to know if somebody, because we don't believe in getting rid of people for every mistake. What we believe is the saliva should recognize problems and deal with them and coach people and make sure that doesn't happen anymore or get to the next level. Or if it can't be fixed, then you have to deal with it in a different way. But the immune system should be doing that. And leaders have really got to ask themselves the question, how healthy is the immune system in my organization. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to understand that. So let's delve deeper into how can leaders do that? So what are the processes, the systems, the questions? I love the idea about the monthly pruning conversation that needs to happen. What are some of the other things that people can do to really set up that healthy culture? And I presume also there's a conversation that needs to happen with oneself as well as with the company. Well, there's a lot of different things that you can do, but I think one of the most effective ways to do it is if you think about it being done through teams. Mm-hmm. Because anything of any size, what I've noticed is it always goes like this. you got somebody's good at something, and they go do what they're good at. And it may be dry cleaning, or it may be services, or it may be fixing audio equipment in houses. And then they think, oh, I could hire more people to do this. And then they got this, five years later, this company. Whatever it is, McDonald's started out, somebody made good hamburgers in a stand, and then they decided to multiply it. So what happens is you got somebody, an entrepreneur is usually good at something, or they got an idea, and they go get the resources, and they get a plan, and they start to work the plan. And the worst thing that can happen to them is that that becomes successful. <laughs> right? Yep. Because now, see, they were good 
at making burgers or electronics or something. Now, the only way for that thing to grow and to get bigger is that it's going to mean that they can't do everything, and now they've got two jobs. They've got burgers and they've got leadership. Uh And if they don't recognize that, then they are going to be in the way. And the best way to leverage anything is with teams. And so the first thing they've got to do is they've got to get clear about their purpose. And what I like to do is get teams together. In fact, I've got a virtual retreat that I put on my website where people could just take teams through from A to Z in asking this question. What is it we're trying to do and getting very, very clear about that? And if that's true, then what goals are going to accomplish that? And once we're clear on that, then they have to ask themselves the question that you're talking about, what kind of team or what kind of culture are we going to need to pull that off? And see, that gets to the specifics of the business, and they're very different, but people don't think about this oftentimes. Like, I worked with a healthcare system that one of their differentiators was they wanted to be the infection-free healthcare system. In other words, they wanted to have the hospitals that weren't making people sick. They were actually helping them get well. Good. And they wanted to be able to market that and advertise that. Well, when you ask what kind of culture do we need to do that, one of the things that they needed was a culture of no mistakes and precision. Okay, so if that's going to be part of our culture, what are the values and what are the behaviors that we need to begin to train people in to pull that off? All right, so think about the next step. Mm -hmm. We started working with the operating room teams, and what we found was that you really start to reduce infections when you get a team talking about the values of precision and what behaviors are going to load on that? Well, one of the behaviors was we're going to have a rule. Everybody in the operating room, if you have a queasy feeling about anything, then you can say it and it will be received. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's very different than what they had had before when, when the nurses were afraid of the surgeon yelling at them. Right. If they said, I don't think that feels... And you start to build into teams and cultures, what do we need to look like to make our business work. Now, that's an operating room. But what if you're Google? Precision and no mistakes is the last value you want. <laughs> I like right? That. Yeah. Because you're about innovation. And people need to understand that every business is different. Some need to value independent decisions where you can go do an acquisition and not even call us if you're within these guidelines. Other ones have to protect the brand really early and not do any acquisition unless we all weigh in on every one. Mm-hmm. See, one goes to speed, another goes to the building of a brand. And so when you're building a culture, this is not psychobabble, oh, we just want to have a nice, friendly place to work. No, it's about figuring out what is our business and what kind of culture do we need to build and what kind of behaviors do we need to look for, review on, and reward that are going to build that culture? And sometimes it's speed, sometimes it's innovation, sometimes it's the opposite. But we got to think about it. 
love the whole idea about asking yourself first, what's your purpose, what are your goals, and then asking what kind of a culture do we need. Normally, people do it the other way around. They do. What's our values? What are our values? You know, what culture do we want? And it's almost separate in a lot of cases from the purpose, from the results that they're measuring. So that's fascinating. I love that flipping around of that conversation. It's so important to do it that way. You know, and I go into these companies where, you know, I ask them about their values and they go, well, integrity. And I go, really? (laughs) That's your differentiator. So just because you don't lie to people, you think you're going to (laughs) win. I mean, you know, my... My kids, when they were five or six years old, they they knew what lying was, but they're not ready to build a business. Definitely. <laughs> so can we value some things that are actually going to, you know, there's some just permission to play values. You got somebody in here without integrity, fire them. But that's not going to make you win. Right. And so you've got to start asking, what do we need to value here that's going to make our business work? And then when you build it around that, you're designing a culture that actually is connected to the drivers of the business. Mm, I love that. That's a huge takeaway. Thank you. That's fantastic. Now, I have a question that's been popping in my head the last few moments before we get to the rest of the point of, like, how do you actually make these endings? How did you learn this? Were there some life experiences or or things that shaped your particular thinking about endings? Because you have so much wisdom about it that... I'm just curious as to where it came from. Well, I think it's like a lot of other things. I think we always are combinations of a lot of experiences. You know, everybody's got their little niche, right? And so I think that my little niche in this whole world of leadership is that I came from a clinical background, meaning that I was really, really, and always have been and will be deep in the weeds of human functioning, how the brain works, how the heart works, how motivational states work, how reward states work, how conflicts and relationships fuel and get in the way of success and just how humans function. And I also had this interest in business. And so I kind of landed in the middle that what I find is it's when you're talking to people about leadership and business that you can have strategy and you can have values and you can have plans and you can have execution and you can have vision and you can have all that. But at the end of the day, the person's got to walk out there and pull that off. And when they have to go out there and do it, their personal and interpersonal wiring is going to be ultimately whether or not that vision comes to fruition. So what happened with me with endings was in working with really high performers, I would just kind of see it from both sets of eyes that there's a leadership path here that you've got to do strategically and with resources and alignment and all the stuff that leadership would ask, but it's staring you in the face and you're not doing it. So what is it about the personal blocks and the interpersonal blocks that are keeping this from happening? And so... I think where it came from is just, you know, it's 30 years of being a shrink and being in the war rooms with a lot of companies and just having to kind of be out there and do it. This is hard stuff. Well, it is. And I appreciate the fact that you've been in the war rooms with people and helping them make those decisions because it influences so many different people's lives. And thank you for sharing where that came from. I think that's fascinating. Clearly, your passion is 
people and how it can work better and how they can not only influence themselves differently, but their companies. I, people in, in business are two of my passions, too. Oh, I just, business does so many good things. And I just think, you know, when an entrepreneur starts something, I'm thinking of children that are going to go to college because of the employees that are going to work there five, ten years from now. I'm thinking of communities that are going to look different because that service came and revolutionized life for a lot of people. If you can get business right, it's one of the ways that life distributes life. You know, when I see a company that's thriving and people love to come to work there, they're building their lives around what that entrepreneur created. And their families are built around it. And the way they come home at night, and whether they're beat up or toxic and hate their life, or whether they come home energized and love their life, a lot of that comes from the business that they work for. And so I'm really passionate about it. I just think I feel sort of like going to church every day when I go to company. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Shepherding the flock here, because what they do is so important. I love it. That's awesome. One of the other things I want to make sure that our fabulous entrepreneurial audience gets to hear from you, too, speaking about leading people, is the difference between reality and hope. And I want you to talk about hopelessness, too, because I think there's some very, again, insightful ways that you look at that. Well, we know that hope is, and no matter what leadership book you'll ever read, Hope is going to come up there as one of the most important things that a leader brings and inspires. You know, if a leader can't really make people feel hope that we can do this and belief that we can do it and keep them moving and energized, then it's just not going to work. Do you know the number one factor that loads on goal achievement? A lot of people say it's motivation. You know, if you really wanted it, you would pull it off. It's not true. The number one factor is belief that it can be done. Mm-hmm. There are other factors that come in right behind that. So hope, believing that we can get there, is one of the most important things a leader can do. All right. Now, having said that, hope is also one of the worst traits a leader can have because many times they are hoping in something that absolutely has no basis of working in reality. And there's no objective reason to hope that that person's going to turn around, that that market is going to get better. You know, in the time period it needs to work, the consumers are going to finally like this product that I love so much, or, you know, whatever it is. And the definition I put in the book was this. It's a formula. Hope, by definition, hope spends time. Mm-hmm. See, if we have hope for something, we will spend more time and energy in that person, in that strategy, in that product, in whatever it is. And if you are down a wrong road, the worst thing you can do is hope that it turns into the right road. <laughs> yes. Worst thing you can do. Yep. And so what I write about in the book is there's a difference between hoping and wishing. Right. Wishing is subjective. It means I want something to come about. But if I actually have hope, that means that there are objective reasons why 
I'm going to continue to go forward. And one of the things I like to see leaders do is take their teams through diagnostics of why are we going to continue to pour time and energy into this or that, what has hope, and what is really just wishing. And that's a really important difference. And one of the things that struck me is hoping someone would be different, hoping that their behavior would change, hoping that they would finally get the coaching when there's absolutely no reality tied to that. And the importance that one of the things that you said, I'm paraphrasing completely, is that you really don't take action until you give up hope, which I think is such a great instigator. It's such a great activator. It's like, okay, if I may actually give up hope that this person's ever going to change because they're not going to, only then will I actually do something about it. That's right. When you realize that more time and more effort and more anything is not going to make a difference, then you get hopeless. And that moment of hopelessness is one of the most important moments you can ever come to because you realize, I am staring a future in the face that's more of what I'm already getting no matter what I do. And that will actually make you begin to do something. Mm-hmm. So now what I'd like to get into is, because I know some people are kind of like, okay, how do I do this? How do I make necessary endings? And by the way, the gentleman who referred necessary endings to me, and I emailed him saying I was talking to you today, and I said, do you have any questions? And he said, yes. How do you get started with a necessary ending? (laughs) Which I thought was such a great question. So again, talk a little bit more about diagnostics. And I think one of the things that's confusing for people, they get themselves confused about is how do I know whether or not this should happen? And clearly that hopeless moment is a key instigator. What else should people be paying attention to? Well, I think one of the first things you have to ask yourself is, what am I doing to contribute to the problem? Mm -hmm. There are times when we're wanting somebody to be different or wanting something to change, and our focus is on them, and we're not recognizing that actually I'm part of the system here. And I like to have leaders ask themselves, the first question is, whatever you're getting in results from somebody or a team or or whatever, one of two things is true. You're either creating that or you're allowing it. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, it may be that I'm not doing my job. I may not have enough clarity. I might not be holding them accountable. I may not be resourcing them. I may not be training them. I may not, you know, there's a bunch of things. For people to succeed requires things from their leaders. Mm-hmm. And that's what the leaders got to understand. You know, a parent can't be yelling at a kid for getting bad grades if they're not doing anything <laughs> to make sure that the things that bring good grades are happening. hmm So it may be a real failure in leadership is why somebody's not performing. Now, having done that, then you have to ask yourself, what about this situation, if I'm going to invest more time, what is going to be new or different for me to invest more time or energy? For example, I think one of the examples I put in the book was this. If you go to the bank... And you say, you know, we've been losing money for a year and a half, but we really hope next year we're going to turn it around. We think it's going to be different, et cetera, et cetera. And the bank says, why do you think it's going to be different? Well, you know, we're really committed. We really believe in this. And all you're giving them is basically stuff about 
why you want it to be different versus if you say to the bank, well, what we've done is we've got three new alliances that we didn't have before. We've done a deal with Nike for distribution, and we've done a deal with ABC for marketing, and we didn't have that before. We also have replaced the operations director that was not getting stuff to market on time. And you got four or five reasons why there are new or different things that are going to be happening. Now we've got a reason to think, okay, maybe there is hope in this. So the first question I want to have them ask themselves is, what is going to be new or different? And they get stuck right there a lot of times because the only thing that they're really thinking about is that they want it to be different, not that something new is coming to the table. Mm Mm-hmm. And some people, if you go back to the leadership issue and how they're creating it, some people, when the leader does everything they're supposed to do, they're coaching, they resource them and everything else, but that person, there's no uptake of that. You make a distinction between three different types of people. Can you outline those two? Well, that's when we start really turning the lights on. (laughs) 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 And what I say to leaders is, by and large, I bet this is true of you. If you're leading something and you've started something that's successful, by and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, this is going to be true. You're probably a pretty caring and responsible person, or you wouldn't have gotten here. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, having said that, caring and responsible people make a fatal mistake. They always make this mistake. They think that everybody's like them. Mm. Meaning that what's true about you probably is if you're not doing something well or you're harming somebody in some way or you know you step on my toe, then all I got to do is tell you, hey, could you do this differently? Could you make the marketing materials go out sooner? You know, the last few times have been late. Can you? And when I give you feedback, because you're caring and responsible, what do you do? You care. Oh, gosh, I would never want to cause us to be behind. I'm really sorry. Let me. And you change in relation to the feedback. Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm-hmm. you care. You care about the harm it's causing the team and everybody else, and you take responsibility. The problem is, just because you're that way doesn't mean everybody else is that way. And there's basically three different kinds of people. What I call in the book, the wise people are the people that when you give them feedback, they care about it and they take responsibility and they adjust themselves, and this is key, they adjust themselves in relation to the feedback. Okay, mm-hmm. I tell you, the way you did it wasn't the way we need it. We need it done differently, and they go, oh, gosh, you're right, show me how, we work on it, and then they adjust to the feedback. That's wise. Wise person may not be the smartest cookie in the room, but they adjust to feedback. Got it. All right. The second group is what I call the fool, and the fool may be the smartest cookie in the room. They may be the smartest, the brightest, the most talented, the most charming, but the difference is this. When you give them feedback, They don't adjust themselves to the feedback. They try to adjust the feedback. Mm. So they'll minimize it. Oh, well, that's not true. Or they'll blame you for it. Well, that's because you didn't give me the resources I needed. 
or they'll externalize it. Well, you know, it's because the client and the way they, or they'll deny it. No, that's really not. Or they'll shoot the messenger. You know, they'll say, well, that's because you're not doing, you know, and somehow the bottom line is this. The problem is never in the room. (laughs) (laughs) They're not doing what the wise person does, which is to embrace the feedback, care about it, and adjust themselves, and thank you for it. I always call the foolish person the victim. It's always being done to them. They're never responsible. That's exactly right, and every victim has a persecutor. <laughs> and it's probably you. So they see you as the persecutor. Mm-hmm. You know, how could you think that way about me? Well, you don't trust me? What, are you saying that, you know, and somehow you've become bad for giving them this feedback? Right. And so there's a proverb that says, confront a wise person and they'll become wiser still. Do not confront a fool lest you incur insults upon yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And they'll hate you for it. And it comes out of the book of Proverbs. And that's what leaders find is they get themselves in this corner where there's somebody they're trying to lead and they keep getting feedback, but they're not changing. And what they do is, because they're loving and responsible, they keep talking to them. Mm -hmm. When... The wise person is the one you keep talking to because it actually helps. But if somebody's giving you foolish reactions, stop talking to them about the problem. They're not listening. Stop it. Okay. It sounds a lot like raising kids. Well, you know, kids don't come into the world wise. (laughs) (laughs) But that doesn't mean you shut up altogether. That's true. We can't just leave them alone. So I'm... I'm going to stop talking to them about the problem, and now I'm going to change the conversation. And I'm going to tell them, you know how I've been talking to you about getting the products out on time or calling the clients back or A, B, or C? Well, you know what? I've been talking to you about that, and I just want to let you know I'm not going to talk to you about that anymore. I'm not going to bug you with it because I want to change the conversation. I want to have a different conversation, and the conversation I want to have now is not talking to you about problems. I want to talk about that talking to you about problems doesn't help. Mm. That's what I want to talk about. So what we need to do is we have got to sit down, and I need to know from you the way to give you feedback that's going to have some sort of an effect, and I'm going to see a change. Because I am going to limit my exposure and the team's exposure and the company's exposure to this pattern. And the pattern is hurting us, and I'm not going to allow it to continue. Now, I want you to be here, and I want you to succeed and all that, but I'm going to tell you, whoever is going to be in that chair is not going to have this pattern. Mm. And I would like for that person to be you, but you get to decide that. And I'll help you, and I'll do anything. But what I won't do is I won't allow this pattern to continue and spread the results we're getting here. So basically, when you wake up and realize that somebody is unteachable and they don't really want feedback and they're going to always make you the problem, then you have a different conversation. And many times, I think I put in the book, you know, there's great hope for fools. (laughs) (laughs) They'll change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. It's up to leadership to create the right kind of pain. And so people do turn around. But sometimes what they'll do is self-select out. And they'll say, you know, what you're requiring from me is not really what I want to do, so I'm going to go 
be successful somewhere else and talk about how bad you are. And so that's what you got to let them go do. And then there's a third category that I called evil. And basically, the fools will cause you a lot of pain, but they're really not trying to hurt you. They're just trying to avoid responsibility. Mm-hmm. The difference in that and an evil person, an evil person really wants to hurt you. They like divisiveness. They like bringing people down. They like it when people they feel competitive with lose. I've seen them stand up in boardrooms, ready to walk out and point at the CEO or somebody and say, I will bring you down and walk out. See, that's a desire to destroy someone. Wow. And so with wise people, you talk to them. With fools, you give them consequences. And what I say with evil people is there's only one strategy, and that's lawyers, guns, and money. Because <laughs> you go into protection mode. Right. You only talk to them through your attorney. You have to call the police, you call the police, and you're going to spend some resources. But you do not engage them because they're out to get you. So you have to protect the culture and the enterprise and even the business and yourself. Mm-hmm. That's such a useful distinction. And I think especially the wise ones, the ones who can take the coaching, as you said, you keep talking. And I think if I think about people at Strategic Coach that we have let go or had that conversation with, it is always the people who aren't listening, who cannot take the feedback, who don't do anything with it. I can't think off the top of my head of anyone who is actually destructive. But it's that not paying attention, not listening, not being coachable or teachable. Making the distinction between the wise and the foolish, I think it has been part of our maturation as a company yeah. that we now are willing to have that conversation after three months instead of, in one case, three years. <laughs> That's how long it took. And you know what? Back to the immune system. You're building a culture where everybody knows that. So now, because we're having these conversations, now there's actually documentation. So you're not in a legal bind when you do need to get rid of somebody. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. The last thing I want to talk about before you wrap up, because our hour is almost up, I can't believe it, is when sometimes it's appropriate to end things, it doesn't mean that you don't have feelings not unlike grieving. And you talk about metabolizing endings, which I think is such a great terminology, very much like the human body and the immune system. So just touch on, you have a great example in the book, how division had to be shut down for one of the people you were talking to, and they held a funeral for it. Yep. Yeah, they did. And I thought that was such a cool thing to acknowledge the fact that there was a loss. It was appropriate. It was needed, but it was still sad. And they actually had a whole ritual or ceremony around it. You know, they did, and I think it involved a plant or a a location as well. And I think they got a time capsule. Right. And they filled the time capsule with a bunch of stuff, and they buried it. And they thought, you know, someday there's going to be some other company or something on this site, and they'll see what we did. And they did all this symbolic stuff because you've got to get the message through to people That was yesterday, and we're moving forward. And that symbolic moment, there's a reason we have funerals. It's to help people let go. Mm -hmm. Because if your system is still holding on, then you're going to be dragging the past into tomorrow. And I see this all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've seen teams stuck at very high levels when somebody's been brought on from some other company and in the new company, instead of really, really, really embracing everything and going forward, they become kind of a stick in the mud and every other word out of their mouth is, 
Well, you know, when I was at AT and T, or when I was at Motorola, or when I was at Procter and Gamble, or they've not let go of where they were, and they're not getting with the program. Mm-hmm. And so it would be like, you know, somebody's out there single and dating, and you go out on a date, and all the other person talks about is their ex. <laughs> We've all probably done that. <laughs> Everybody's been there, right? And yeah, so. Just ask for the check and move on. (laughs) Because you're not interested in dating the ex, but they're still carrying the ex around with them. That's right. You're dating two people now. So you're dating two people. And so it's really, really important that we have endings. And it's really not psychobabble. What you're talking about is biochemistry and neurochemistry as well in terms of when people have emotionally let go of something and moved on, the literal fuel in their brain changes that organizes all of the systems that are going to be needed to deliver the behaviors to do what you want them to do. Mm. And it's very, very important. I love that. So before I let people know, or we let people know how they can learn more of your great writings and great wisdom, what is one question that people need to ask themselves to start thinking about a necessary ending. And, and by the way, one example I haven't shared with everyone yet is after I read the book the first time, it made it easier to declutter my home. Yeah. Things that I thought I would maximize or have a use for sometime. I thought, you know, I just kept them around. So when you bring a lot of things into a house and nothing ever leaves, it gets a little cluttered. The thing about a business, you bring a lot of things into it. If things don't leave, exactly. there you are. It felt so refreshing just to have, again, a way to think about the problem and a context for making that decision. So is there one question that you start people off with when they're thinking about necessary endings? Well, I start with a statement that I want them to consider. Okay. And the statement is this. I think I put in a sentence in the book. I just want you to be open to this sentence. Today may be the enemy of your tomorrow. Mm, I love that. And what I mean by that is, There are things going on today that you're involved in or people or patterns or whatever that are incompatible with the growth or the tomorrow or the vision that you're telling me that you want to create. So can you be open to that? Uh If they can be open to that, then they have to ask themselves the question, what exists today It's either in the way or is going to slow down or is incompatible with the tomorrow that I really want. Mm -hmm. And that's the place to start. Mm. I love it. And then you get into the good stuff, which is, oh, that hurts. (laughs) (laughs) And then you talk about everything else we've talked about. I love it. This has been incredibly enlightening. I've got at least 10 more questions in my head I could ask you, but we're running out of time. So if people want to learn more, I mean, please, everyone listening, run out if you haven't already and either download or get necessary endings. And you've written two other major bestsellers, Boundaries and Integrity. Well, Boundaries for Leaders, that and Integrity are the two on the business leadership side that I would suggest they look at because Boundaries for Leaders really helps people to figure out what are the structures in my organization that I need to create that are going to actually drive results. And a lot of the necessary endings is going to be built through those structures that good leaders do. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now, if people want to check you out or check out that virtual retreat, I think, that you talked about, what's your website? How can they reach you? It's just... DrCloud.com, D-R-C-L-O-U-D 
com. I've got a high performance team building. It's actually a, a retreat that I take you and your team on. Oh, great. Through streaming video, I will come in there with your team and I'll walk you through the steps of how do you get from A to Z and become a team that can actually deliver that and build the kind of team culture that's connected to the drivers of results of the business. And I'll talk for a few minutes and I'll say, okay, here's the question I want you to go work on is this, hit pause, and when you've resolved that, come back. And so it just walks them through it. I love that. That sounds incredibly exciting. Well, I have to say just a massively huge thank you. I have learned a ton. It's great to get into some even deeper explanations than what I read. So I appreciate you doing that. And if I could say, you know, the familiarity I have with what you guys do, and I'm speaking as the psychologist here, basically we know that performance cannot get better. By definition, nothing gets better in a closed system, Mm -hmm. okay? Because, you know, as thermodynamics will tell us, anything in a closed system runs down over time. So an entrepreneur left unto him or herself or their business, by definition, they're a closed system until they open themselves up to two things. Number one, they need new energy sources. Mm Mm-hmm. And number two, they need templates or intelligence to organize that energy. And so what happens in coaching and strategic coaching is exactly that, that people open up themselves as a system and they come join, and I love the way you do it in groups, they join a group of peers and in that system over time, what they're going to get is they're going to get new energy into their stuck places and it's going to propel them into the flow of stretch experiences of their own capacities. And number two, they're going to get systems and templates and intelligence to organize that energy down a path. I've always seen a correlation and an inverse correlation between lack of success and the ability to take in coaching and feedback and help. Mm-hmm. The most successful leaders I work with are the ones that are the easiest to work with because they don't let anything get in the way of their time and investment in coaching. And so I just love the way you guys do that. Thank you. And I absolutely love having Strategic Coach described that way because that's completely accurate and I've never heard it described that way. So that is a fabulous way to end <laughs> this conversation as much as I hate to. So, Dr. Cloud, thank you so much for being willing to spend the time and for all your deep wisdom in terms of necessary endings, different types of people, the whole pruning metaphor, ways to think about something. And I think until now for people has been a real challenge. So I know that endings for me, you know, I have that emotional resistance to them. So for me, it's been impactful. And I know certainly, as I said at the beginning, for people that I work with, it's been challenging. So I'm extremely confident that our conversation today will leverage people into whole new areas of both energy and frameworks for increased growth and really to maximize their potential as you talk about. So thank you again, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Okay, thanks. It's been good to be with you. Yeah, thank you very much.